before some of you were born, so we actually had pen and paper then, and we could write things down, so we didn't always have to, but, um, but Jerry, uh, a couple, just two things I'll say about Jerry, but he's currently teaches, uh, he's a professor at Wheaton College, teaches evangelism, he's been a pastor, he was kind of a, men- he was a mentor of mine when I was a student in college, um, He's the kind of guy, he has a PhD, his academic works with C.S. Lewis, but he's the kind of guy that can talk to a professor at Oxford or talk to a garbage man about Jesus, and he can do both uh, flawlessly. Um, he, uh, he's a great guy. Every time he sees me, he literally still to this day, he will hug me and pick me up off the ground with a bear hug. Uh, sooner or later, he won't be able to do that when he gets older, but... Uh, he was one of the first, I'll say this, and I'll, then I'll shut up because I want him to speak. He was probably the a key person for me to help me understand that you can be manly and spiritual at the same time. I think growing up, I had separated those categories. If you want to be a man or athletic or tough, being spiritual felt kind of soft. Uh, but Jerry modeled for me, you can be both. You don't have to be. a matter of fact, to be spiritual is to be quite manly. It doesn't have to be a soft uh, thing. So he put those two worlds together for me. But again, uh, I'll let you kind of hear and see more of Jerry. So uh, Jerry Root, uh, Pastor Jerry Root, Dr. Jerry Root, Reverend Jerry Root. But to me, he's just Jerry. So Jerry, why don't you come on up? I'm really honored to be here with you. I thought I was. There's that ergomics thing you were talking about before the service. I'm honored to be here with you. I'm honored to be with Matt and Kathy, and it's good to see Juliana, Juliana and uh, uh, Jimmy Geezer. I've known Jimmy about since he was born. And then Michelle Connor. I saw her and her son Harry come in here. And it's just great to see people I know and, and, and love and have loved for many, many years. So it's a lot of fun for me. It's also fun for me because I love your pastor and his wife. And I've loved them deeply. And I have seen God use him in many, many ways and in many environments. And it's cool for me to be here. I have a couple things I, I, I would like to focus on. One is since uh, Matt's series has been on remembering, I, I would like to enter in at that level. And I would like to then eventually focus on remembering the love of Jesus for each of us. But let's start with a word of prayer. Father, we worship you for this Sunday. Matt said something earlier about future, and the future is this afternoon. It's this next week. It's the months and years ahead of us. But, but as we come to this day, this moment, Father, we realize that this is one Sunday in a lifetime of Sundays. It was quickly upon us and quickly it will be forgotten. But I know it's a moment where eternity intersects time. We don't ask you to be with us because we know that's a redundant prayer. We know that you are here and that you have aspirations for each of us. You love us and you want us to know your love. And so I pray in this moment, that your Holy Spirit would have his way with each of us and we would hear something that long after we have forgotten where we heard it, it would still be rattling around in our minds and hearts and we would feel the weight of the affirmation of it, that we are people deeply loved by you. And in light of that, that we, like those who loved us in the past, we would be people who would pass on what we've received 
from you. That we would be people who would love others to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Um, There's two passages I want to look at. The first one's in Hebrews 13. And in verse 7 it says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. If you know Christ, there was probably somebody in your life who came alongside and spoke something to you. It's it's not always the case. I actually remember in college, I became a Christian in college. I had a friend who told me that he became a Christian over the summer. I said, really, who who led you to Jesus? He said, nobody. I said, well, how could you have possibly come to Jesus if nobody? He said, I read the Bible. And I said, well, can you become a Christian by just reading the Bible? You know, it was a whole new concept to me. I thought somebody had to share the four laws or steps to peace with God or take you through evangelism explosion or something like this. So, so I, I, I think there could be exceptions to this, but by and large, there was somebody in your life who spoke a word to you, who stepped outside of the considerations of whatever was burdening them at that moment, and they loved on you. And considering what they did for you, imitate their faith. Having been recipients of love, God deploys us into his world as a lover. Now, this gets a little complex, and therefore I'd like to take you to this other passage of Scripture, and I would like us to see some important things relative to that. What does it mean to be loved by God? The passage I'd like us to consider is, see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when He appears we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed upon Him purifies himself just as He is pure." My, my best friend at Wheaton College is a theater professor, Mark Lewis. Uh, Mark was a star on television in the soap operas. He played in the soap operas for years. Um, he's played on Broadway. Shakespearean actor, professional actor, he's a wonderful guy. Um, he loves Jesus intensely. But when he was young, he was the eighth born child in a family of eight kids. And he was raised in a family that was very fundamentalist. Uh, uh, well-meaning, good-hearted, maybe a bit rigid. And Mark picked up on that rigidity, and most of his siblings were kind of in step with that. But Mark was an artist. He functioned differently. He saw life differently. And he never was quite understood by his parents. He said one day his parents were gone. One of the older siblings was supposed to be babysitting him. He was about six. You know how that goes. And so he decided he was going to show his parents how much he loved them. So he got out his colored pencils, his felt-tip markers, his paints, his crayons, and he spent the whole day drawing a mural up the back wall of the staircase of their house. And he kept saying to himself, when dad and mom see this, they're going to say, wow, look how much Mark loves us. Look how he used his special orientation and his way of viewing the world. I don't think he said it with quite that complexity. (laughs) To show us using his gifts and lavishing them on us how much he loves us. 
He kept imagining that they would grab their neighbors and friends and say, look what Mark did for us. And his parents came home and you know what happened. He got what for? He said it wasn't that he got spanked that bothered him so, so much. It was that his parents never saw what he was trying to show them. Fast forward. He was directing the fall play at Wheaton College. Uh, Mark has, uh, uh, at that time he had three daughters. They, they have uh, four daughters they've adopted from China and one from Ethiopia. But he was directing the fall play, and his, his day went like this. He would teach classes. He would grade papers. He would go to faculty governance meetings. He'd have student appointments. He'd come home for an hour break, and then he'd go back for rehearsals. It would go long into the night. And he was sitting in this ante room off of their kitchen that opens up into the dining room family room. Huge, huge room in their house. And while he's sitting on the couch just resting, getting some rest, so he could endure the rest of the responsibilities he had to face that day. He sees his daughter, Ruby, six years old, standing at the sink on a chair, pouring water from the, from the tap into a plastic basin and water splashing everywhere. And Mark's saying to himself, I just came home for a break, now I gotta go clean up this mess. And he gets up and he goes, Ruby, Ruby, honey, what are you doing? And Ruby bursts into tears. And Mark's wife, Mary, says, Mark, she knew you were weary. She was just putting water in a basin so she could wash your feet. And immediately Mark remembered his experience when he was six. And he says, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. Here, let me help you. And he helped her with the basin. He says, it was the coldest water he ever put his feet in in his life. <laughs> but he said, you know, my folks didn't get it right. I got it half right. Maybe one day Ruby will get it all right. Why is it that that story touches us so much? Because each of us have been on both sides of it. We've all been the one who was understood by somebody. And those messages got Velcroed to us and we have carried them as part of our identity. But we've also been the one who's done the misunderstanding, well-intended as we may be. And there are people who bear the loss of that at some level. Donald Miller, who wrote Blue Like Jazz, wrote the sequel to that book. It's called Searching for God Knows What. And in that particular book, he says he was always on the fringe of his social set in high school. He longed to be included. One day he was reading a poem on his own, and he liked the poem so much he memorized it. A few weeks later, somebody said something at school. He says, oh, that reminds me of a poem I read once. And he recited the poem. And all of his friends looked at him and said, Miller, you are so smart. Miller, you are really smart. So it was the first time in his life he felt good about himself. So he started memorizing lots of poetry after that. But he realized also he needed to gain a sense of self based on how he perceived others saw him. But everybody he looked to was as insecure as he was. How do we gain this identity, this kind of thing that we saw in the people who took enough time out of their busyness to love on us so that we would be in some way introduced to Jesus and nurtured in Jesus? Well, I think it gets down to this. There's only one person who knows you utterly and he loves you completely. And we need to come into connection with an understanding of God's love for us. Uh, as Matt said, most of my academic work is on C.S. Lewis. Uh, but I don't agree every, with everything C.S. Lewis said. 
Um, he, he wrote in Mere Christianity that he thought pride was the great sin. Um, he wasn't the only one who said this. St. Augustine in his commentary on Psalm 19 also said he thought pride was a great sin. And when they talked about it, they, they, they spoke of it as if pride was the sin from which all other sins are generated. Um, pride would be like the main spring from which all these others constellate and, 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 and are energized. If, if they would have said pride they thought was the apex of a process, and just like the pyramid, uh, the tip of a pyramid is the apex and the greatest point of the pyramid, I could sign on. But I don't think that's the way they meant it. Now, I disagree with C.S. Lewis and St. Augustine. I'm probably wrong, right? I can, I can hand you that. But let me see if I can at least make a case. I may be wrong, but hang in there with me. If pride, like I would suggest, is like the tip of a pyramid, it's the end of a process, then that which is beneath the apex of the pyramid is far more substantive, invasive. So what precedes pride? And here I'm not talking about pride of a job well done. I'm not talking about the, the picture that you put up on your refrigerator with the refrigerator magnet because you're so proud of your child or something like that. Or you made an investment in somebody else's life and you're happy about the way that turned out. I'm talking about that form of pride that exhibits itself in pretense and makes itself look better than it really is. That kind of pride that can almost inadvertently develop in a Christian fellowship. You see, if we marginalize the struggler with words like out of fellowship, carnal, backslidden, though nobody says it explicitly, the implication is you have to have it all together in this community. And nobody has it all together. So consequently, we make ourselves look better than we really are. How are you? I'm fine, fine. We're dying inside, but we're fine. I learned this from Matt, even, when you t turn me on to Henry Cloud's changes at Heal, and, and Cloud says the church should look like a recovery group. At some level. We all come beat up and bruised in a world where we've been misunderstood in a world where we misunderstand. But we come honest and open, unpretentious, and there's hope for us to get better. Anne Lamont in her book, uh, uh, All New People, it's a novel. She has the mother in the book always saying, what sound does a one-hand clap make? And obviously it doesn't make any sound. The daughter says, oh, I heard there was a Japanese proverb, what sound does rain make? And the answer is, it doesn't make any sound unless it hits something. A hat, an umbrella, a puddle. And the context is, what sound does grace make? And grace and the love of God and the nurturing of his character towards us doesn't make any sound until it hits something. And a strange relationship, a broken heart, a broken life. We want to be a fellowship where this can come to us. So anyway, if, if pride is at the apex, what precedes pride? And I'd like to suggest to you it might be insecurity or fear. If you knew me like I was, you might reject me. So the pretense flows naturally from that. But what precedes fear and insecurity? And here the scriptures are explicit. 1 John 4.18, perfect love casts out Fear. Perfect love casts out fear. If perfect love casts out fear, I think we could draw a corollary from that, that imperfect love breeds anxiety. You and I have never been loved perfectly by another human being before. Well-meaning people doing their best, 
and yet we've still been saddled with the burden of anxiety. It gets worse before it gets better. Well-meaning as we have been, we've never loved, loved others perfectly as well. And people in our world, though we intended well for them, have been saddled with the burden of anxiety. There's only one person who knows us utterly and loves us completely. God's love is ontological. It is connected with his essence and his being. If God is love, as the scriptures say, then his love cannot be diminished by my poor performance, nor can it be improved by my good performance. And this passage we've just read talks about that. John's grabbing us by the lapel, or I guess in his day, by the toga. And he's saying, I want you to get this one thing, how much God loves you, that you might be like those who gave of themselves for you, and remembering the outcome of their faith, you might imitate them by going forth in the love of God to love others as well. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us. The Bible says quite clearly that the sins of the parents are visited on the children of the third and fourth generation. Is there anybody in here that can say the names of their eight great-grandparents? First names. First names. Maybe there is somebody. Well, you know what that means? You're two generations away from being forgotten. <laughs> but it also means that the sins of the parents are visited on the children of the third and fourth generation. You're living the legacy of people whose names you don't even know. And not only that, you are passing on a legacy to people who won't remember your name. The choices we make in this life have rippling effects that go down through the generations. Now, when Moses wrote, the sins of the parents are visited on the children of the third and fourth generation, it's written in the Pentateuch, the first books of the Bible. Uh, Israel was on the threshold of its national life. And Moses is writing and saying, you have responsibility to the generations. All knows as this nation begins. And we could just be despairing if that was all that the Bible had to say. But the Bible is such a balanced book. Because you get to the, 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 the books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and it repeats there, just because the fathers eat sour grapes, it doesn't mean the children's teeth will be set on edge. Our future is not determined for us by things we have no power over. And so is their national light is flickering and about ready to go out, as they're ready to go into captivity, these words about just because the father eats sour grapes doesn't mean the children's teeth have to be set on edge, are given to us as a word of hope. We can do something about it. It can get better. We can avail ourselves of the love of God and redefine ourselves in his love. Thomas Fuller, he was a 17th century pastor in England. He lived in a very turbulent time. He one time was doing a devotion on, on the book of Matthew uh, on the genealogy of Jesus. And you think, he's doing a devotion on the genealogy. There's a guy with too much time on his hands. <laughs> you know, have you ever thought about this? The Bible is so thin. It says in the Bible if everything that might have been written about Jesus could have been written in John's gospel. It says the libraries of the world couldn't contain all the books. If we believe God is all-knowing, he didn't give us much, did he? I shouldn't worry about it too much. I'm not good at obeying the things that are in the thin book, let alone needing more. <laughs> but I remember one time doing my devotions, and I don't know about you, do you ever sometimes get stuck in the repetition of the sacrifices in the book of Leviticus? 
or all the detail of the construction of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, or you get to Chronicles, first 12 chapters. It's just names. I remember saying in prayer one time to God as I came to Chronicles, I said, Lord, you didn't give us much. You're omniscient. You didn't give us much. Were those 12 chapters of names good economical use of the space in this book? (laughs) And then it dawned on me. To me, they were just names. There's never been a person who's breathed on this earth who was just a name to God. Every one of those people meant something to him. And it dawned on me. To me, they're just names, but in a sense, I hear echoing now through those passages as I read them. Oh, if you could have only known Sarah. Oh, if you could have only known Judah and the struggles of his heart and how I tried to meet him at every one of those places. And I read them and I say, wow, these testify to the fact that God loves people. God is love. It's ontological. So this Thomas Fuller, he's doing this, this, this uh, Bible study, this devotion on the genealogy of Jesus in Romans, or excuse me, Matthew 1, and he sees changes in every generation. Watch, listen, listen to this. Lord, I find the genealogy of my Savior strangely checkered with four remarkable changes in four immediate generations. One, Rehoboam begat Abiah, that is, a bad father begat a bad son. Two, Abiah begat Asa, that is a bad father, a good son. Three, Asa begat Jehoshaphat, that is a good father, a good son. Four, Jehoshaphat begat Joram, that is a good father, a bad son. It's not all deterministic. Choices can be made. Fuller goes on to say, I see, Lord, from hence that my father's piety cannot be handed on. That's bad news for me. But I see also that actual impiety is not always hereditary, and that is good news for my son. Don't you appreciate the sentiment and the honesty with which that's written? We all had fathers. Some of them did poorly, some of them did well. None of them did perfectly. But John is saying there was one father who always gets it right, and he loves you. People, he loves you. He loves you. And it's out of that we begin to understand his grace to us and we get to be ambassadors of his grace to others. The the text goes on to say some interesting things. It says one day we'll be like him when we see him as he is. I, I don't think it means that we'll ever be like Christ in his deity. It's too late for that. The the created can never become uncreated. We will never be rivals for his omnipotence and power. We will never be rivals for his omniscience. Matter of fact, we'll never be omniscient, I don't think. We'll talk about that in just a moment. One day we'll be like him, I think, in the sense that sin will finally be eradicated from our life. The self-interest that keeps us closed down on self, self-referential and utilitarian in relationships using other people, that will be eradicated. We will become utterly self-aware in the love of God and unafraid. So we could even say at the base of the pyramid, the great sin is rejection of God's love or living our life ignorant of God's love or not availing of ourselves of the riches of his love. And one day it will all be eradicated and we will stand utterly understanding what it means to be loved of God. 
And sin will be eradicated. I don't know you. I, I, I worry about my, my failures and my sins. I can't wait for that day. One day we'll be like him. That means we'll be like him as people who have sin eradicated and we will be finitely perfect before the infinitely perfect God. Imagine what that'll be like. I have a dear friend, and, and we've had this 32-year discussion. You know, Larry Fullerton. We had this 32-year discussion. What'll be the first word we say when we get to heaven? And, and, and my friend, you know, he's, he's a good guy, but he, I think he's a little theologically deficient. <laughs> he says he thinks the first word we get to heaven is going to be, oh. <laughs> oh. Now I see why I went through that bad financial reversal when things were tough in the U.S. economy. Oh, now I see why that person I love so dearly <laughs> dumped me and abandoned me. Oh, now I see why that person I love so dearly was taken from me so tragically. Oh, I'm beginning to put it in perspective on a bigger canvas. That's good, but I don't think it's accurate. <laughs> I think the first thing we're going to say when we get to heaven is going to be, wow, I didn't know that about him. If you know zero to 100 bits of information about the infinite, how much more is there to know? An infinite amount. If you know zero to 1,000 bits, zero to a million bits, zero to a billion bits, we will never get to the bottom of him. Remember the first time I read through the Bible as a new Christian, a freshman in college. Read through it from cover to cover, got to the end. I thought, this is an amazing book. There's so much in here. I had no clue. But I get to the end, and it was sort of anticlimactic. All these people in heaven standing before God saying, you know, worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive honor and glory and power and dominion and majesty forever and ever. And that how it's, it didn't sound so boring to me. <laughs> the next year, I read through the Bible. And when I got to the end, guess what? They were still doing it. <laughs> And I thought to myself, what do perfected beings see in him that we who struggle miss? My guess is it's the overwhelming ontological love of God that's certainly a part of that great complex fabric of who God is. Well, that's all great, but the text says what? One day we'll be like him, but that means then that now we're not like him. Now we're fumbling along, making mistakes. Some of them we make innocently enough. Others of them we make intentionally. Our wounds are deeper than our convictions. We try to fix for ourselves in violation of what God has said because we don't believe God will take care of us at a particular place. It says in the text, beloved, with all of our brokenness, now we are children of God. Now we are children of God. The prospects of that are incredible in seeking to understand the love of God. Think about it with me. I'll give you two images. When, when my children were young, my wife and I tried to be responsible parents. We made mistakes like all parents do. We tried to do the best we could. We went to seminars. We read books. We tried to get our heads together on the same page as to how we're going to raise these kids. And then five years later, you find out all the research has been discredited, and you think, <laughs> what have we done to our children? 
But we came up with an approach to discipline. We didn't always do it well, but we, by and large, we, we were on this track. If they did something that was not of harm to life or limb, they got a timeout. If they did something that could either harm them or harm somebody else, we would give them a spanking. We would always clarify what it was that they did, and we always made sure we never disciplined them for something we didn't say we would discipline them for. No surprises in discipline. See them playing in the street when they're little. I'd say, hey, Jeremy, what did I tell you not to do? You said, Dad, you told me not to play in the street. What were you doing? I was playing in the street, Dad. What did I say I would do if you played in the street? <laughs> you said you'd spank me, Daddy. <laughs> I'd ask these questions. Do you think I love you any less because you played in the street? No, Dad, you don't love me any less. Is there anything you could ever do that would make me love you less because uh, uh, whatever you do? And he said, no, Dad. I said, but am I happy you played in the street? He said, no, Dad, you're not happy. And then I would administer my loving kindness to his hindquarters. <laughs> I would never dismiss my kids after discipline of them. I'd never say, okay, go to your room. I don't want to see you, something like that. I'd always take them in my arms and hug them, and I'd hug them till they were happy because I wanted them to know they don't have to run when they need to be disciplined. They can come to me, and, and I want them to see something reflected, echoed in that, of God's love for them. You know what my kids would do whenever I was finished spanking them? Always, 100% of the time. Turn around like this for the hug. You know, it was no problem with my boys. I have three boys and one daughter. She, she's now got her doctorate in psychology. I think our family drove her to it. <laughs> the boys would turn around like this for a hug. I'd take them in my arms. I'd hold them. We'd sway. We'd sing. Eventually, they were happy. I'd tickle them a little bit and send them on their way. I didn't reject them as a human being, even if I would have been displeased by something they did that might have been harmful to them. With my daughter, Alicia, she'd turn around like this for a hug, and I was always faced with a moral dilemma. Every orifice of her face would have leaked. Her eyes would have leaked. Her nose would have leaked. Her mouth would have leaked. And when she'd turn around like this for the hug, my temptation was to say to her, Alicia, I so long to give you a hug, but could you go and get a bath first? <laughs> Shower up, clean up, and we'll do that hug thing. But it would have communicated something I didn't want to communicate. You got to have it together before you get the hug. She'd turn around like this for the hug. I'd take her in my arms. She'd put her head on my shoulder and deposit her DNA all over my clothes. <laughs> and a light went on for me at that time. Relative to this passage, every father who loves his child bears the stain because he loves the child. One day we're going to have it together. We don't have it together now. Now he calls us his children. He bears the stain because he loves the child. Let me use another image. My wife, uh, we, we've had, uh, she had five pregnancies. We have four children. She had one miscarriage. She went through five pregnancies. Um, it was back in the day when they didn't have cutesy maternity clothes. They didn't have maternity shops. The maternity section of some department store was tucked away in the back as if to go back there you needed to be embarrassed about this phase of life. We were poor. I was a youth pastor. We were raising all our kids at home on a youth pastor's salary. And, and, and she had a couple of maternity outfits. But there was a, a, a wardrobe that kind of worked its way around the church with all the women who were going through that phase of life, having kids and sharing these, these maternity clothes with each other. I remember one time after a church service, I walked up to this woman, blonde-haired woman, put my arm around her. 
looked, it wasn't my wife. She was in my wife's clothes, but it wasn't her. <laughs> well, Claudia hated the maternity clothes. So we would always save up during the pregnancies so that as soon as she could see her feet again, she could go buy some new outfits. Have you ever seen a new mother with a new baby happy to be out of those maternity clothes in a new outfit whereby the new baby and the new outfit are in any way compatible. The mother nurses the baby. She puts a diaper on her shoulder. She puts the baby's face right in the diaper. Does the baby hit the diaper? No. But does the mother abandon the child because she doesn't want to bear the stains? No. Every mother who loves her child bears the stain because she loves the child. Do you see how great this love is? It's incredible. And it even goes on to say then, in verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed upon him, the hope that one day will be like Christ in his perfect humanity, never like him in his deity. The hope that even though now we don't have it all together, he still loves us, and out of that love nurtures us so that we can grow and do better. Everyone who has this hope fixed upon him purifies himself just as he is pure. The motivation for our activity as Christians is rooted in this love of God. That's why we can imitate those who took time out of their own lives to come and nurture us. See Matt and Kathy loving on you? See Dan and Pam loving on you? You say, what is it that motivates them? Imitate that. And I guarantee you it's rooted in this love of God. Everyone who has this hope fixed upon him purifies himself just as he is pure. During World War II, my father was in the Marines in the South Pacific. He was in three D-Day invasions in the islands of the South Pacific. If you ever saw Saving Private Ryan, that movie, they have the D-Day invasion at Normandy. My dad did that three times. He was in the first wave to go ashore at Tarawa. It was the bloodiest battle of World War II for loss of life and real estate gained. 30,000 went in. 5,000 went in on the first wave. The beach my dad went in on the first wave, 1,500 went in. They misjudged the tides, dropped them off at the reef. A lot of guys drowned right there. Took them four hours to get to shore because there was a long pier we didn't take out because we thought we could resupply quicker. There was a, war, a wharf there. There was a, a bunker that we didn't take out with our bombardments. And he went into a U-fire. Took them four hours to get from where they were dropped off to the shore. When they finally got to the shore, there were only 200 able bodies of those 1,500 that went in on the first wave. My dad was one of them. He was told by his commanding officer with seven other Marines to go take out the bunker that had killed 1,300 of their mates. And of the eight Marines that went up, the other seven were killed, and my dad was the last one with the flamethrower. He saw a lot of horrible things. He was in the second wave at Saipan, saved people's lives under fire. He was in the first wave at Tinian, the island we took for the dropping of the atomic bomb. My dad was a tough guy. I think there were parts of him emotionally that were left on the battlefields of the South Pacific. There were pieces of him that I don't think came home. But he was a loving guy. He was present in our life. I just never heard him tell me he loved me all my life. But one day when I was a sophomore in college, he just stepped so much out of his character, he put his arm around me and he looked at me and he said, Jerry, I love you. Never heard him say it before. My eyes flooded with tears and I responded and said, Dad, I love you too. We never had a conversation after that where we didn't end it by saying, I love you. 
I found myself on weekends coming home to help him rake the leaves, mow the lawn, and wash the car. And I realized at that time, I could have come home to rake leaves, mow lawn, and wash car to try and earn his love. Or knowing he loved me, I could have come home, rake the leaves, mow the lawn, and wash the car. Same action, but an eternally different motivation. The motivation comes out of the love for God. Remember those who loved you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their faith, imitate their faith. And my guess is it was a faith rooted in the love of God. Unless we forget that, something becomes contrived in our walk with God. I want to end with one last story. I, I, I was on an airplane one time. I saw a movie. It's hard to recommend a movie you see on an airplane because you don't know how sanitized it was before it ended up on the, on the, on the plane. Um, C.S. Lewis said, when you enter into a story, I, I, I'm an academic, I like to think critically about things. I don't mean critically demeaningly, but to think, to, to, to take the thing apart, see if you can, uh, uh, you know, extend the applications of it or whatever. But, but Lewis says, don't do that initially when you come to a story. Let the story wash over you. And then if there's some point where you were particularly moved, go back and think about that point. The movie I saw was The Notebook. Have any of you seen that before? How many of you have seen it? How many of you didn't see it? How many don't, don't want to admit you saw it because it was a chick flick? <laughs> I saw the movie. I was deeply moved by it. Particularly one moment in the film. And, and I was trying to figure out what was it about that moment? Let me rehearse the story with you. There's this old man played by James Garner. He shows up at a rest home to read a story to an old woman. And the old woman's very standoffish, and the nurse says, it's okay, he comes and reads every day. So you realize, oh, this nice old man, he's coming and doing volunteer work at the rest home where people have dementia. And so the whole story is James Garner reading the story to Gina Rollins, who plays the old woman. And the story has a flashback in the past of this young couple played by Ryan Gosling. I think it was his, big, his first big movie. And, and Rachel McAdams, I think it was her first big movie too. And, and, and it's a story, a love story, that seems like nothing is going to make it work. This guy cares for this girl, but it's set in the south. It's in the summer. It's a, in a little village or town where there's a lake. And the girl's family come from a big city in the south, and they come in summer at the lake, and they're wealthy enough that they could do that. She comes from great wealth. He comes from modest means. He's interested in education. He went to high school. He likes the poetry of Walt Whitman. She's been educated in all the right schools. Her family's together. There's a mother, a father, and a daughter. His family's not. We never know what happened. It's a father and son. We don't know if the mother left the family or if there was a death. But there's been some pain in that family. The girl's family doesn't look like there's been a whole lot of pain. Or at least if it has, it's been glossed over. And in these very difficult situations, it seems like there's so much counting against the possibility of this love relationship working out. The young man promises at the end of the summer romance that he will write to her every day. The mother hears the comment. She's at the mailbox every day to intercept the letter. The girl never gets the letters. The boy never hears back from the girl. He thinks she doesn't really love him. The girl never hears from the boy. He made all these promises. She thinks he didn't really love him. 
World War II breaks out, and circumstance and geography separates them further. And it seems like nothing is going to make this love relationship work. And yet, ironically, it does. The love of this man for this woman starts to break through. And there's a union and a relationship that emerges, and it's at that moment in the movie you realize this old man is reading this love story to this old woman because this old woman is this man's wife, and they are the ones whose story is being told. Towards the end of the movie, there's this extremely tender scene where the old man and the old woman are sitting at a table in the rest home. They've had a nice dinner. There's a rose and a bud vase. There's a candle burning. There's music playing the music that informs so much of their relationship. And this whole environment is screaming out to this woman the love of this man. And he finishes the story. And the woman says, that's the most beautiful story I've ever heard in my life. And it sounds so familiar to me. And then cognition washes across her face. And she says, it's our story, isn't it? And he says, yes. She says, how much time do we have? He says, last time it was five minutes. She says, how are the children? That's a question a mother would ask. He says, they're fine. They came to see you today. She says, oh, tell them I love them. And while the music is playing, she says, will you hold me? Take me in your arms. Can we dance? And they sway as the music plays. And as quickly as she fell into cognition, she falls out of cognition. And she finds herself in the arms of a stranger. And she says, screaming, wondering what's going on, confused. And the orderlies have to come in to sedate her. And as soon as they're sedating her, James Garner's character is standing against the wall, biting his knuckle, weeping. And it was when I saw James Garner weeping that I lost it. As I came back later and thought about the film, I said, why that moment did it touch me so deeply? And it dawned on me at that moment that this story is all of our stories. Every one of us are a part of an impossible love relationship. And we live most of our lives without cognition. We live most of our lives struggling with the messages that we've picked up from well-meaning people who can't do it perfectly. And this perfect love that casts out fear is constantly directed our way. And we have those moments where we come into cognition and we realize the glory and beauty of it. And then sometimes something sad happens and we fall out of cognition as quickly as we fell into cognition. And when I saw James Garner's biting his knuckle, weeping, I thought, that's a window into the heart of God who loves us with a love like that and whose heart breaks when we live our lives trying to find our own way rather than re-entering into the love of God that is directed towards us, that is constant, that is ontological. The people who took time to love you must have known something about that. May you always be mindful. Remember. And in remembering, may you pass it on. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, thank you for this love that you've given us in Christ. Thank you for the love that has been echoed to us through others who cared for us. I pray that you would let the triumph of Christ's love for us eradicate the struggles we have where we've got mixed messages and help us in living in your love 
be ambassadors of that love to others, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Uh, end every Sunday. Uh, we, well, we don't end every Sunday. We culminate every Sunday by uh, taking communion. And if you remember the phrase that Jesus...